pre-sorting these data sets and making sure that the appropriate data structures are used so that energy isn't wasted on just filtering data and, and, and moving that data around is very important. Compression has been a big deal. Hello folks, time for me to touch on to greening AI. As the power of sensors and processing rises and their cost drops, artificial intelligence holds the potential for greening many systems, including itself. So how can AI help? There are two approaches to green AI, one using AI to solve sustainability challenges and two using AI in a more sustainable fashion. I'm Alex Petrus and this is Applied AI Pod. Welcome to an episode where we talk to Cordell France, machine learning engineer and CEO of AI startup Seeker Technologies. Let's find out more insights and a good applied AI perspective on building green AI solutions to green industries like agriculture, outdoor, and more. Let's dive in. This episode is brought to you by Bucharest.ai, the AI and acceleration community of 3,000 members. Sign up for the community to join AI practitioners, share from their experiences, or gain know-how for your AI startup through their AI pre-accelerator. When we talk about greening AI, there are two perspectives to be looked at. One, the resources we use by our uh, AI work and the impact and efficiency of our AI models, um, also our data sets. And two, how AI can be used or is used to increase sustainability, safety, or forecast for proactive management in sectors like water, energy, transport, agriculture, and more. Tell me, Cordell, how, how do you guys use AI to unlock it uh, for the environment? So at Seeker, we primarily focus on, on two different realms for, as far as the environment goes. Conservation is one and agriculture is the other. Let's briefly talk about the agriculture part. For agriculture, there's, there's uh, there a lot that you can uh, do to contribute to the environment. And primarily it's in yield, so crop yield, being able to utilize less chemical and less resources. And also, you know, there's a big fuel consumption on farms because they're pulling this, this very heavy equipment. And so there's a lot of diesel that's used and obviously a lot of carbon emissions in the environment. We're trying to reduce that by making farmers more informed and a little more efficient with the way they use their resources. Um, so for as a, as a couple of examples, we have a computer vision product that helps act as an agronomist does. So an agronomist goes to a farmer field and assesses the health of the crop by inspecting it. Uh, most of the times visually, at least in like potatoes and grain or wheat, the, the process is visual. Um, and sometimes they'll send a sample back to the lab. But what we're trying to do is basically put all of that into a, a mobile device so that you can assess your plant health, your crop health by just, you know, taking a few images or some video footage of what the crop looks like. And, you know, we're using object detection and uh, to identify where the leaves are and where to look for the certain symptoms of certain diseases on the roots of the plant or the leaves. And also coupling this with drone aerial footage um, allows you to get a, a pretty comprehensive view of, you know, your farm with, and you can do this multiple times a day. And so you can be more efficient with resources and more efficient with 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 how you're spending time and how you're spending money and also, you know, how many times you're running a tractor through the field. So being more precise about how you're using these resources is, is very key because before, if, if a farmer were to find out that uh, one field has a disease, he might treat the entire field in a certain way, or he might, you know, he might re-till the field in a certain way. But if you're more precise and say, I only found this disease in this certain corner of the field, 
you can only treat, you know, a very small portion of the field, which saves on diesel, saves on, you know, chemical resources, et cetera. And so computer vision is a big part of that. And uh, additionally, there's, we have a, a sensor suite that sits on, that we put on each implement that basically monitors their, uh, the implement's behavior in real time. So these implements are going through the field and they, they encounter a lot of forces because the ground is very, it's very hard. And there's a lot of times there's rocks underneath there. And these, these, this equipment's really put through the ringer and being able to monitor the impact and forces of all of, the, of this equipment as it goes through the field allows us to provide predictive maintenance schedules so that the, uh, the operator knows when to replace a certain implement part or when, you know, uh, what certain parts of the field, maybe you shouldn't plant in. Maybe we don't need to use diesel to run a tractor through that part of the field because, uh, you know, it's, it's not particularly, it doesn't particularly provide a good enough yield and there's a lot of rocks there. So there's not going to be good, uh, crop health there, that kind of, that kind of a thing. And so the sensor suite is, is very valuable and it, um, it, it really allows the farmer to kind of gain a real time map of, of their fields so that they can provide smarter ag agricultural decisions, but also be more efficient about how they're replacing their equipment. Because, you know, if, if one part of the equipment breaks, you know, maybe before the, the uh, farmer goes out and he gets an entirely new piece of equipment, which compromises the steel on the old piece, when maybe, you know, you didn't need to replace the entire piece of, or the entire implement, you just need to replace a certain piece of it. And we're able to tell you when and how to replace it because, uh, you know, we we're monitoring, we have this giant nervous system that essentially sits on, uh, this implement as it runs through the field. So, uh, being able to provide those types of resources really contributes to a decrease in diesel fuel consumption and a decrease in, in, in chemical use as well. So, which is, a primary key for at least what we're doing in order to drive down carbon emissions in agriculture and make sure that, uh, you know, AI and ag is sustainable and, actually engage more players in the field. We want more players in the field so that we can we can continue to drive down that carbon footprint and that those greenhouse gas emissions. How exciting. That's pretty useful uh, nowadays, especially there there's an increasing interest towards sustainability and towards discovering how AI or robotics could be used in uh, agriculture. Um, so you use machine learning and computer vision for, for providing such uh, AI tools or uh, what are the AI spices uh, that you use? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we do use a lot of co computer vision um, and a lot of uh, other, other things as well. So um, let's talk briefly on computer vision. So when, if, if, you have a, if you have a large field of, say, potatoes, uh, there's, uh, farmers hire somebody that's called uh, an agronomist. And this agronomist comes and they assess the plant health or the crop health of, of the entire farm. And sometimes they'll use, uh, you know, they'll use aerial imagery or sometimes they'll use they'll just the agronomist just walk, simply walking into the field and, and checking out the crop. Well, we're using computer vision uh, coupled with drone aerial footage and also just uh, normal, you know, side by walk up footage. And to be able to identify plant diseases through mobile devices and also through uh, you know, a drone camera. So being able to use a suite of different sensors uh, coupled with the camera in order to identify, you know, how healthy your crop is. And maybe, you know, maybe in the case of resources before there might've been an assessment where, uh, you know, uh, an agronomist would have found a, a, a diseased 
plant in one field and just kind of render the whole field as, as bad or diseased or the entire farm is diseased. But in our case, we're able to kind of do a, a very precision assessment so that we can be able to say, hey, well, you only need to apply certain chemicals or certain treatments on this part of the field because the rest of it looks better. The rest of it looks okay. The rest of it looks healthy. And so what this allows the farmer to do is to use less resources, less impact on the environment because they are able to, they aren't able, they aren't having to treat the entire farm or the entire field. They're able to be more precise about the resources that they're attributing to these treatments. I would and, assume that you deal with a lot of data because that, that requests for you to, to store images or real-time data for, for the crops. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So we, there's, there's, you know, just like any machine learning model, um, we have to take in a lot of data uh, in order to train these models and make them very accurate and being able to continue to improve uh, these models because, you know, what a certain disease looked like last year might not look the same, or might not look identical in five years. It might be slightly different, you know, just different or due to different environmental factors. So you have a really dynamic environment in which these diseases are changing constantly um, or slightly, right? It's kind of like a virus. Things are, are evolving at certain points. And so it's got to be adaptable. And so it's got to be constantly learning while also maintaining accuracy and, ma you know, and, and maintaining trust with customers and, and with the farmer. Mm -hmm. um, there's, uh, we also do a little bit with or a lot with conservation as well. So uh, animal conservation and being able to uh, ensure that People like, for example, we have a, a, an image recognition system that we install on trail cameras. So uh, there's a, a lot of conservationists and hunters will have um, these cameras that they install at different points within different, you know, different locations in the environment to see what type of animals are trespassing in that environment or what type of animals are crossing in, in kind of uh, in, in, in that realm. And what these cameras allow them to do is we do image recognition to let them know what, what animals are there. So instead of them having to go back through several hours of video footage, uh, we were able to just say, you know, there were this type of deer here, there were this type of elk, this type of whatever animal, et cetera, uh, so that they could make the appropriate decisions for, for that domain as well. Mm, that's cool. I love that. Um, uh, that uh, leaves you with enough field to have a large impact uh, in the sectors. Um, are there any metrics that you could share with us uh, in respect to the impact you have had to date already? Say you've worked with someone and you managed them to, to uh, save them, I don't know, X percent of the crop or uh, let them know of something that you, you managed to, to alert them? So uh, pr precisely, we don't, we're, we're, we're we don't have any metrics per se in that regard, uh, but we know we do know that we have been able to been able to save the, the, uh, several farmers on on costs quite substantially, uh, particularly in the ways of fertilizer, in the ways of chemicals, and in the ways of the fuel that they're using um, to uh, you know excavate these fields and farm these fields because uh, that we're not you know we our technology allows them to determine which treatments they might need, which, you know, if they don't need to plow fill in a certain way afterwards, then, you know, that saves a lot of diesel that might not have otherwise, or might have otherwise been spent on uh, before, you know, our treatment was, or before our product was able to be assessed. So we, uh, we're compiling metrics right now. The, uh, the technology is still a little bit, or it's not in its infancy, but in the ways of how much we're saving farmers, we've, we've only got a couple of years behind it. So, uh, 
but we can we can definitely get you some metrics following. Thanks so much. Um, you also are active in the in the sports uh, space. Uh, where where do you use AI in uh, in sports or outdoor recreation? Or what's a good story to share in this space? Yeah. So in in regards to sports, uh, a lot of what we're what we do is uh, it's going back a little bit to conservation and shooting sports. Um, we had we had a product where you could. Uh, put some software in a rifle scope and it was able to recognize what was in the rifle scope. So it recognized if it was an endangered species or not and whether or not you, you know, you should act accordingly. So uh, that kind of evolved into a product where we were able to use AI uh, to predict bullet drop and drift, right? So it's able to measure the wind uh, both where you're at and at the target by looking at surrounding foliage and everything and able to predict, you know, how far the bullet's going to drop and drift. And so this kind of uh, moves over into shooting sports so they can get kind of a more decent accuracy on where the, you know, that bullet might hit. Um, also, in, in addition to that, there's a, a lot of snow sports such as snowmobiling or, you know, backcountry skiing um, in which, you know, they're, they're the, uh, the performer is subject to avalanche because uh, they're, they're up in high altitudes and they're up in these volatile environments in the mountains. Uh, Seeker built a product that acts, uh, actually increases the performance of an avalanche transceiver. So when, when someone goes out to a mountain to snowmobile or they go up to, you know, cross country skiing, backcountry skiing, whatever, uh, they, a lot of these uh, individuals carry something called a transceiver. And this basically allows someone to send out an SOS or to communicate a bad situation um, if they do encounter an avalanche or if they do, uh, you know, in fact, are, you know, if they're buried or whatever, that allows the rescue team to come and find them. What we were able to do is basically build an artificial intelligence uh, software application that, that fits on your phone, uses very low energy, but functions in the same way as a transceiver and functions at a longer range but also functions um, more precisely. So you can actually kind of play a game of hot and cold to find a person should they be subject to, you know, avalanche burial or, or, or something like that. And so we're able to gain additional precision on what's actually on the market. And instead of having to go buy another transceiver product, you're just able to use your smartphone. Um, and so that, you know, that's, that in turn saves several lives and in turn increases, you know, people's uh people's desire to maybe you know go out and encounter the outdoors again but uh the snow sports especially is, is probably another um or the other sporting realm that seekers breaking into uh i love uh, ai applications that uh, that impact uh, sustainability or life saving i think these are the best illustrations for how good ai could be used as the right tool in certain contexts how are you how are you looking at uh, um, using a greener AI in your own AI work? For example, do you consider looking besides accuracy, looking also at efficiency for for when you build your AI solutions or work with your AI models? Yes, so let me I want to touch on that in just a moment, but I want to go back to I want to touch on something you uh, just mentioned a second ago with kind of the, a lot of the potential of AI to or a lot of the perception of, of AI to potentially uh, you know be bad and kind of you know with, with, with deep fakes and general adversarial networks and stuff. It's, it's interesting because 
agriculture had self-driving, right, or self-steering back, you know, like 20, 25 years ago. And so they were very early adopters of this very high technological, you know, self-driving software that we're seeing in cars. And we're seeing a lot of demand with artificial intelligence in, in self-driving cars. And it's, uh, so they were very early adopters, but the, the technology hasn't really kept pace. And so now it seems like agriculture is kind of falling behind a little bit in the ways in which they're able to use these new technologies, especially in the realms of artificial intelligence. And so being able to, you know, again, going back to making, uh, you know, greener applications and, 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 and utilizing less resources to benefit the environment, um, there's, there's a lot of potential within that industry. And they're, uh, it, they're, a lot of these applications, they, they, they don't even know that they exist really, or they don't even know that they're not familiar with the industry as, as heavily as some of the more um, evolved industries, such as medicine or, you know, self-driving cars, for example. So it's, it, there's a lot of opportunity there and a lot of impact within agriculture. Um, and I want to, I just want to go over one more example that really uh, illustrates the kind of impact that this has had. Uh, we have a suite of sensors that we install on some agriculture equipment. And if you keep, keep in mind that the equipment that is running through these fields is subject to very high forces and there's some, there's sometimes there's a lot of rock underneath the ground and there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of impact going on to these, the frames of, of this equipment. And, um, obviously that takes a lot of power, which takes a lot of fuel, which takes a lot of, uh, you know, it has a harder impact on the environment and. So the sensor network that we built is installed on these on this equipment and monitors the uh, the accelerations and the forces that they're impacting throughout the field. And what it does is it's able to chart all of these forces and chart all of these um, uh, you know accelerations and where they're at in the field that provide predictive maintenance to know when equipment will fail and when it's subject to fail because. Before, um, there's you have these large implements that is pulled behind a tractor, and sometimes you know you don't really know if one part of it goes out, you might just replace the whole thing, and then you have kind of a scrap waste of steel or iron um, that 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 might have you know maybe that whole implement wasn't bad, but we just needed to replace one wing of it or one part of it. So this predictive maintenance sensor suite allows you to pinpoint exactly you know what parts of this implement are bad and what you know what what parts are a little more damaged than the others. So you can be more precise with your resource allocation. And, you know, you can, instead of replacing the whole thing, you're only replacing a certain uh, quantity of steel. Um, so you don't have to use and, 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 and kind of, um, you don't have to consume as much with the environment. And <clears throat> additionally, with that sensor suite creating kind of a map, it allows uh, a more efficient use of diesel within the uh, within the tractor within the within the agriculture equipment, so that it can know um, when to when to maybe not plant certain areas because there's a large rock pile underneath, and when to go around certain areas just because the the ground maybe isn't as fertile underneath, and so it it saves on diesel costs, which has a, a much further impact in the environment, which is is obviously secret goal. Um, addressing the point, uh, going back or going back to the point that you addressed with um, um, with data and how we're kind of trying to be uh, more green with our solutions, the there's a lot of anything that we have. Uh, AI, artificial intelligence takes a lot of computation, and computation takes uh, electricity. Computation takes a lot of energy. Uh, there's but you probably familiar with a recent event with uh, Tesla saying they're no longer going to 
invest in Bitcoin because yeah. they Bitcoin consumes a lot of energy, right? <laughs> <laughs> so they're going, they're trying to find a greener cryptocurrency. Well, why does Bitcoin use more energy? It's because it has, there's, it's not quite as computationally efficient as uh, some other cryptocurrencies. So uh, kind of an analogy, an analogy to that, you can think of AI the same way. If your models and your algorithms aren't efficient, you're using more energy and you're not, you're not being as, as clean with the environment because um, you know, if, if an algorithm could be more efficient, you can use less energy. And what our models do is we embed everything on the device. So if we have an artificial intelligence model, our computer vision models that we use, they're all embedded on the device and they don't need a cloud connection. So they don't need an internet connection in order to operate. So this, there's, there's a couple of things that this means. Uh, one, it's protection of privacy of the user's data. And second, it's, uh, it, 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 it saves energy because if you have to transact with the cloud, every one of those transactions takes energy. And so you have to send data to the cloud for the AI model to process. It's got to send a, a ruling back, a classification back. And that takes time and energy, um, especially, you know, cloud servers take a lot of energy. So we, by embedding the AI model inside the product, we're able to kind of save on that energy, those transactions and, and, and increase the energy efficiency, basically run off the battery of, of the camera or the phone or uh, whatever product, what it is that we're doing. Um, so... Yeah, it's. I, I think edge edge detection, uh, running models within the device itself, is a lot harder to do. And it may, you know, sometimes it's uh, there is a slight compromise in accuracy. But that's really where our products shine and protecting patients' data or users' data, and you know, using less energy with these models is something that the industry has to address in in order to make sure that we move forward and the AI industry in general moves forward in a very uh, sustainable and clean regard good space uh, and place right now. Yeah, doing that uh, um, on-premise stuff um, that enhances and focuses on privacy, communicates less with the cloud. That's a good greener approach to doing AI work. Uh, but what about training your AI? Because that's uh, also one, one side of the story where we use a lot of computing power and um, you need to train your models. And I presume you you train it with a lot of data. Um, right. How how is that going, or what are the um, actions you you consider taking, or aspects you consider um, looking more into, for example, for a greener AI context, uh, mm-hmm. maybe thinking at data set level and also training uh, le- level. Right. So we try to, we try to, uh, you know, if anyone who's trained an AI model knows that there's, there's a lot of retrains, right? Like you train it one way and then you find the model doesn't perform that well. And then you train another way. Um, or maybe you find out that the data maybe isn't as clean as you originally thought. We try to do a very, very thorough cleanse of our data so that, uh, we have actual industry experts for that. Look at, look at, um, all of our data. So for example, in agriculture, uh, we have agricultural experts that look at the data, not really the machine learning engineers, uh, because the machine learning engineers are the experts in the models, but they're not actually the experts in, you know, agricultural data and, and, and what's, you know, what plant diseases might be recognized in those images. So being able to make sure that our data is clean beforehand so that we have less model trains, what uh, less model training sessions, uh, which is arguably one of the biggest portions of, of, 
of energy that is used throughout an AI model development process. Uh, making sure that we have you know as few training sessions as possible is something that we we consider in high regard. Um, and we we try to again not train anything over the cloud. Uh, we try to do everything with our in-house uh, compute system. Um, and if we do have to use or rely on a cloud server or, or, or cloud provider, we try to ensure that we can we select a candidate or a provider that is at least attempting to reduce their carbon footprint or has a cleaner. Uh, we, we, we choose the candidate that has the cleanest carbon footprint, essentially, um, so that we can you know, try to ensure that we are contributing as much as possible uh, to the, a cleaner environment throughout the entire artificial intelligence you know, model training process. Um, additionally, you know, pre-sorting these data sets and making sure that the appropriate data structures are used so that energy isn't wasted on just filtering data and, and, and moving that data around is very important. Because if you use, you know, an inefficient data structure just to sort through the data, you're using more energy. Um, and so making sure that everything is aligned just perfectly so that we, we can increase our accuracy um, with the model while also reducing the number of computational calls we're making uh, through both training and data assessment, data cleaning, data pre-sortment, everything is just a few of the actions that we take to contribute to make sure that we're making sustainable AI models. I was just reading um, today in one of Landing AI's newsletter on how important it is to shift our mindset from from actually improving the code itself to to actually looking at improving in a more systematic way the data itself. Because um, yeah, we build on data, we consume the data, we train the data. Um, it's important to improve the code as well, but. Uh, yeah, let's uh, let's bring more more attention to the data level itself, uh, especially that we are democratizing and bringing more AI to consumption level. So, I agree, and especially if you if if you don't accumulate your own data sets, you know it's easy to go online and find a bunch of data and download, um, and that's great and all, but there's there's always a level of error, right? You want to make sure that the data is is doing what <laughs> is actually what is claimed. And, you know, they're, and, and the accuracy that they claim or the labels are, are at least to a certain degree of accuracy. So it's important to do your own quality control processes on that data as well uh, to ensure that you aren't, you know, you're not wasting computational costs. Um, but yes, there is a there is a lot of energy and a lot of computational efficiency that can be uh, saved by just analyzing data better and, and kind of, um, uh, you know, going about the data accumulation process in a much smarter way. Absolutely. And yeah, we deserve a full episode on that, a full episode so we can go more in depth. Uh, I've seen you you guys have uh, have uh, worked uh, with uh, to put three different medical AI products uh, through four board uh, reviewed clinical trials. Um, that's uh, useful, especially in times of COVID. Um, and I see that you are working on a clinical AI tool. Uh, to advise neuropsychologists in diagnosing mental disorders. Uh, that's quite uh, quite the challenge, uh, especially because we run with around one psychiatrist for 100,000 people around the world. And uh, therapy exp is ex expensive. And also that uh, depression may be the leading disease by 2030, uh, as per the, the industry statistics. 
uh, how is it going for you in the medical space and um, what is your feeling and feedback following your your work to date COVID-19 was presented some very great opportunities uh, for Seeker in, in the medical space. We, we were able to, uh, you know, produce a few products that were able to help relieve demand of physicians and contribute to the, the COVID-19 um, screening process. And it's, it's been very well. Uh, there's particularly um, in the ways of acceptance. I, at least in our encounters before the, co- the pandemic, there seemed to be a little more apprehension on taking artificial intelligence and incorporating it into medicine because the consequences are so high if the model is wrong and the prediction is incorrect. I mean, it literally, if you rely entirely on the model, it could cost patients lives. We take a different approach where we try to augment the physician and increase their capability, increase their throughput, not providing the diagnosis, but by just giving the physician as much information as possible so that they can do their job faster and do their job better. And a lot of this came, a lot of what we just briefly spoke about in data was uh, really reflected throughout these medical products that we were building and that we had to ensure that this data was extremely clean. Uh, We had to ensure that it was validated by actual radiology experts in the field and and, and find partners that were willing to work with us towards towards kind of moving, um, building a product that people would accept. And I think the stresses of the pandemic really helped that. I, there was a lot more acceptance to to these higher, you know, uh, these more efficient solutions that involved artificial intelligence, just because the uh, the demand was so high. And uh, for example, on a we we built a a radiology um, a radiology tool that allows a physician to scan in uh, an image of an X-ray or an MRI scan or a CT scan of of, of, of you can really use it for anything like a brain MRI or um, any x-ray, but we built it particularly for chest x-rays because that's how uh, you can identify COVID-19. And it's the, the application was able to identify COVID-19 and pneumonia and a suite of other, other conditions as well. But it was, it was particularly interesting because uh, it, it really increased physician throughput and it was able to really, uh, you know, help people, get screened faster and treated faster. And uh, instead of having to, you know, go through all a lot of different processes in order to get a ruling on a, on a radiology screening, they were able to just use a smartphone or a tablet app um, and, and get real time information. It was particularly, it was particularly sobering for us as a company because, you know, again, the consequences of being wrong are very high and the, we had to really make sure that we were doing our due diligence in data and computational efficiency because we want to make sure that the battery on the phone is relying or the tablet is is going to last as long as possible and that our models aren't going to burn up the battery. Um, but it was it, we really had to be very clean about the data and and very methodic about how we trained our models. It was probably it was probably the least amount of training sessions that we've done on a model uh, just because we were so we had to, we were so precise with what we were, we had to. Uh, how we had to build the model. So uh, th- that project particularly was a lot cleaner than the others in, in regards to energy management, just because there were less training sessions. And that, that product was very successful. It's still on the market today. It's called COVID AI, um, and you can download it on the App Store. But going back to the mental, uh, just, uh, the, the mental conditions that you just spoke about, this is particularly concerning. And there's, there's, I feel like there's a lot of opportunity there. There is a lot of data within a person's voice 
and within a person's behavior that you can identify with microphones and cameras that will indicate, give you an idea about what's going on upstairs in their head and, and the, the, the health of their head. So for example, uh, Seeker has a product called um, Exida, it's for Exploratory Emotional Detection Agent. And it, uh, right now it's being used by physicians uh, in diagnostic sessions. So neuropsychologists in diagnostic sessions to um, help determine what you know, condition patients may have or what they may be suffering from in the, in the diagnostic interview. So if I give you an example, um, if I go in for uh, a diagnostic interview and I think maybe I have PTSD or, you know, there's, there, I think that there might be something wrong, uh, the physician requests, um, requests permission from the patient and lets them know that, you know, if it's okay, we're, we're going to record the, the session through a voice recording and camera. And so they activate a, a mobile application on a tablet that utilizes cameras and microphones. And it's, it's basically assessing the, what the physician's saying and how they're acting. And it's also assessing what the patient is saying and how they're acting. And it's doing a lot of emotional reading at an audio level and a lot of monitoring limbs and bodily movements and, you know, kind of body language. 85% of our communication is through body language. So there's a lot that can be determined just through, you know, looking at how a person's behaving rather than just listening. But, and, and again, all, all this data, by the way, is not stored. It's, we don't record any footage. Uh, we're actually not allowed to. It's against, in the U.S., it's against uh, the law to do that. Uh, but we re just record different, uh, you know, different numbers about how they're moving and how they're behaving that can help the physician later on. But anyway, go, so the, as, the, as the patient is kind of describing their symptoms and the neuropsychologist is going through the agenda of kind of how to uh, treat this patient, uh, we're able to accumulate a lot of good data on, on, on the patient. And what's really interesting is at the end of the session, everything is saved and then the, the app goes and pro provides, uh, builds out a report for the neuropsychologist and advises them on a couple of things that it picked up and, and you know, a couple of indicators that might be, uh, that are a couple of symptoms that might be indicative of certain diseases. So, you know, maybe the patient really does have PTSD or maybe they have something a little bit different. And uh, there's this really beautiful dance between the AI is, make, is enlightening the physician and the physician is critiquing the AI. So they're both making the other better. And it's, it's, it's really cool because you're, again, augmenting the physician's capabilities, but while doing so, you're also making uh, the tool that's helping them a lot smarter. And it's, it's, it's quite interesting because it's able to help uh, a, lot of, a lot of patients so far. And it's also great for memory recall because if, uh, if you go into a diagnostic interview and, uh, you know, and, and I, I, I'm seen by a physician, they might not actually get to my data or my report that, or the write-up that they build for a couple of weeks, um, just because of the demand of, of what they're going through right now. And it's that, that kind of does the patient a disservice at some point, and it, it's it, at no fault of the physicians, uh, but it's, it, you know, two weeks, the memory recall after two weeks isn't that great. So this, these reports kind of help be able to enlighten the physician and, and refresh their memory and give them a better idea of what happened in that interview um, so that they don't miss any details and that they're more precise about what they're, uh, about what they're assessing. And it's, it's fantastic for mental disorders. Our, our goal, obviously, with it is 
is to kind of build a tool that uh, we could eventually use on a mobile device that you could use as a self-screening to kind of get a, a patient mental health assessment. We, we take care of our dental health two or three times a day, right? By brushing our teeth, your, your brain's pretty important. Why don't we, you know, try to do a, a short, you know, audio recording of, of, of kind of some things throughout the day that takes 30 seconds to assess our mental health. If these AI models can get that good through natural language processing and that accurate and being able to pick up certain indicators about how you're feeling and how you're doing, um, and, you know, mentally, then, you know, that's, that's a fantastic benefit for all of society because it gives you the power of, you know, checking up on your mental health right through your phone. And so, you know, this helps significantly relieve the demand of, of, of physicians, particularly uh, neuropsychologists and psychologists in general, um, but also, you know, increases the, the uh, relieves a lot of the suffering we're seeing so far from mental health disorders in the pandemic. A lot of people have depression um, and there's been just a lot of, a lot of, you know, crazy things that have happened over the last year that are really affecting people's mentality. Uh, on the topic of uh, mental health, I, I actually, and COVID and depression and leaving us with a lot of things to deal with uh, concerning our mental health. Uh, I think such an app will be really useful. I would definitely uh, use it, as you've mentioned. Yes, we are brushing our teeth. We are doing exercises for logic and so on and so forth. Why not do that too as well, including our routine? Uh, Harvard Business Review had an article about the fact that we are not in a depression state. We are not in a burnout state. We are in a languishing state. Yeah. Is that state we, you, you, you just are left there without a clear direction, without a clear timeline, just languishing there. Um, so probably, yeah, this, this will need some tools to address it after COVID ends. Right. Yeah. It's, and there's, there really hasn't been, I mean, how, how, to give doctors some credit, how do they treat what's going on? Because it's, there hasn't been something like this at a mass scale, you know, if, you know, these, these patients are sub, suffering from languishing, um, languishing effects, what they haven't really had a lot of experience in that doctors haven't had a lot of experience in that. And so, you know, <laughs> they're, it, it's kind of a new realm for them because they can't, you're right. It's, it, it technically isn't depression. It's a different state, you know, by being isolated for so long and, and kind of, you know, truncating life as you knew it before the pandemic, uh, coming to a brief halt, you know, no one was really prepared for that. And so the, these tools are very important to be able to help, help these physicians. And I really, I truly believe that they will get to the point where we're able to, you know, we're able to screen enough for your voice or, you know, a short video recording of analyzing your face um, to facial expressions and, and, and eye movement to be able to uh, be able to treat these conditions a lot faster and a lot more efficiently. There's, there's a lot of potential there and um, I'm excited to see it where, you know, advances in natural language processing take it and, you know, um, people uh, or uh, um, eye tracking where, where those industries take it. So it's, it'll be, it'll be really interesting. And I hope that we can continue the progress in that regard. I'm particularly um, interested in NLP and because this use case uh, uses NLP, I presume you use automatic speech recognition and some natural language understanding. Um, what are some NLP trade-offs you've been making or what are some NLP takeaways you can leave us with uh, from this particularly, particular work and use case? Compression has been a big deal. 
uh, going back to you know how seekers, artificial intelligence models live on the device, uh, we we followed that same principle into this into medicine and this uh, in, into what I just spoke about with uh, that mental health tool. And you know, it's you can create a very very efficient model that lives on the cloud, and it's you know it might take gigabytes or you know it, it's very large um, and it might have a little bit more accuracy, but we we want to. Be protect, we want to protect patients' data and we want to be, you know, keeping in mind the courtesies that they deserve as a patient, right? Uh, and so we, we, we store all of our models on the device and compressing those big models down to something smaller that was accurate enough uh, was, was a big challenge. And it, it, was, it, it was great to go through because I think that we might be, you know, uh, <laughs> might be pioneering that field a little bit about making, you know, you know, deception and different emotion recognition through voice that live on these very, very tiny models. Uh, there's, there's a lot of benefit with that, but it's additionally, there's, you know, there's a lot of libraries out there that we initially thought we were going to be able to use for, uh, natural language processing that weren't really, uh, we needed more control over. So we had to go back through and redo some of our tools, uh, to a certain extent. And, it's uh it's been there, there it's been it's been a ride <laughs> so the development of that tool in particular uh utilized a lot of different angles that we hadn't previously taken so far there's the you know the automatic speech recognition part of it but also being able to utilize that and you know you've got this you've got all this text right through through automatic speech recognition but how do you gather emotion from it and how do you gather uh intelligence from the sentence structure the way they you know, the way they, they speak and the way that they place subjects and verbs and sentences, et cetera. It, there's, there's a lot of logic that goes into that and a lot of assessment that needs to be considered, um, particularly incorporating that with bodily movement, right? So making sure that our NLP models were synchronized with the data that we're accumulating through uh, tracking the pupils and tracking the, you know, the rest of their body, that was that was that was pretty tough because we we needed to make sure that at certain times a certain event we measured through the camera was also matching up with the dialogue that we were assessing through the the microphones through automatic speech recognition because you know they could have entirely different meetings if you put you know a, a certain trans, a certain transcription over certain body language is going to have a different meaning than if it's over another you know few seconds of body language so uh, you know, ensuring that these models were synchronized so that they provided the correct timestamps of data was uh, another another challenge uh, that we used, and we had to, we didn't really have a tool to do that. We kind of had to make sure that we uh, quality controlled that appropriately on our own. Love this context flow. What are you doing on June twenty fourth a.m. side of the day? <laughs> we yeah NLP stuff. I'm all into it. It's it's um, it's pretty hyped right now. So I agree. It's interesting to hear about the trade-offs uh, you made and the, the points you, you, you reported. Um, it's definitely uh, a, a complex system to, to synchronize with pupils and synchronize the nuances, context, the flow, um, what should go in which moment exactly uh, from the system. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a hard uh, job doing that. Well, last question, and I presume it's going to be fun. Um, do you see any similarities or common traits between practicing jujitsu and developing AI uh, solutions? Yes, a lot. Uh, patience is one of them. <laughs> uh, but I, I've thought about this a lot. And, you know, uh, it, it would be really fantastic 
for all sports in general, but particularly for jujitsu, if you could have, if you could build a robotic agent that you could roll with, that you could spar with, uh, that you could flow with and, and be able to kind of program it on how to behave in there. So it's, it's really a, a hardware problem in my mind. So in, in order to build like a lifelike robot that could, that you could spar with in jujitsu, roll with in jujitsu, I, I think we're there with software. And I think the AI is, as it stands today is, is, is pretty good. Um, and it's good enough to actually, you know, uh, control that, that, uh, that robot in order to, to do what you need. But the hardware I think is, is a limit for sure. Like if you think of a Boston dynamics robot, if you were to roll jujitsu with that, I think, uh, it wouldn't feel too well. You're going to be, I don't think you're going to have any pain from uh, striking or, or uh, a submission. I think it's going to be the metal that's <laughs> impacting your body as it's taking you down and everything. So, uh, yeah, I think there's, if you, if we, we do some, uh, some more, um, progress in hardware, I think that we could get there because like, if you think about it, um, if, if a martial artist is trying to, you know, uh, win over a certain component or a certain opponent, they're going to analyze their fight style and try to try to uh, beat their fight style, essentially. So if you could program that robot to say, you know, he that robot watches hundreds or thousands of hours worth of video of this certain opponent and emulates their fight style so that it's now programmed to basically be that opponent, um, then, you know, the martial artist can go and, and effectively spar with that opponent prior to an actual tournament. And so there's, there's, you know, and that's like a, that's a settings, a settings preference, right. That you could set, um, on how, how light you want to go or how difficult you want to go. Um, and it being able to find out where your weaknesses are and make sure that it, you know, that robot repetitively drills that weakness with you. It's, uh, it's, it's an interesting problem. And, uh, <laughs> I hope that we get there one day because, uh, yeah, it would, it, it would be fun. <laughs> you can get away from the, the impact of the metal hitting your shins and, into the stomach, I think it would be, it would be good. <laughs> Thank you so much, Cordell. Yeah, you're rolling, you're, you're sparring, rolling jujitsu with Terminator. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a big advocate of your podcast and I'll, you know, continue to support it. Thank you. Leaving you with some green AI takeaway tips that are simple improvements to have a larger impact. And I'm counting three obvious things like, Stopping training early for models which are clearly underperforming uh, can lead to great savings. Two, looking at data efficiency for pre-training purposes can be as simple as report performance with different amounts of training data. Uh, and three, increasing hardware performance for AI workloads um, should be in focus. Hope you enjoyed this Green AI episode. Hit me up at ALXPetrus or subscribe and leave a review if you like what you listen. Thank you. <laughs>